Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Los Angeles. Welcome to Los Angeles. We've got another Friday episode. And this one is very special to us because our guest is also a Los Angeles friend. Amanda Montel is a writer, linguist, and author of the critically acclaimed book Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language, which has earned praise from readers and critics alike, including write-ups and publications like the New York Times and Harper's Bazaar. But before Amanda became a published author, she was a beauty editor, just like Kirby and me. That is how we met her when she was a little baby budding beauty editor, 23 years old or whatever. She was a beauty editor at Birdie and Who What Wear. And um, since then, she's moved on to do these incredible things. So we are having her on our episode today to talk about the book because it is uh, now available in paperback. She's also working on another book, and she's giving us a little bit of a sneak peek on that. She's very busy. Um, but she's also diving deep into, you know, the somewhat problematic language that we use in the beauty industry. Um, she's giving us advice for how we can redefine the way we talk about ourselves and our bodies. And she is talking to us about why it's actually really progressive of Kirby and me to say like so freaking much. Like so much. We just like really like wanted Amanda on this podcast to like um tell everybody we're really intellectual. So no, um I think one thing that Sarah and I really struggled with at the beginning was people saying that we said like or um too much or we sounded like valley girls. I'm from Texas, so I definitely didn't grow up in the valley. Sarah didn't grow up in the valley. And I grew up here, but I am not from the valley. And, you know, this is vernacular that women use regularly. If you heard Sarah and I talking like this to each other in person, you wouldn't think twice about us saying like maybe four different times in four different ways within one or two sentences. But because this is an audio medium, it tends to grate on people. And Amanda is going to get into why people feel this way and why women are actually at the forefront of progressive language, mm-hmm. why we create this language uh, as women. So this is something that I think you'll really respect and learn from. I learned a whole bunch during this interview. And I, th- I just think she's brilliant. If you're not following her on Instagram, Same. please do. She does this thing called Amanda University, where she talks about things like the difference between Karens and Beckys, um, why you should stop saying you guys. That is a hard one for me as somebody who uh, has worked on YouTube for a while. That's like the go-to phrasing. Also, why we as women use exclamation marks so much in our emails, why we feel the need to do that, which is something that I am completely guilty of. Like I will look over an email be like, I sound so angry. I need to add like a smile, smile face emoji or an exclamation mark. I know. 
It's so so weird. weird. And she also talks a little bit about the beauty industry and if it's, you know, a cult, if it's a scam. But, you know, that's why we created this podcast, because we do know that there are marketing practices. There are things that people make claims about that just it's not real. It is a way to sell a product. And we want to break through that BS. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. It's a different take on beauty, but I think it's an important topic of conversation for everybody uh, to listen to. Absolutely. But we need to warn you. Oh, yeah. So this is our first. It's a little bit explicit. Yeah, this is our first explicit episode. Granted, we do curse in other episodes. Um, I feel like we know our audience, but we also want to try to be mindful of people that have family, children around. So let's say you're cleaning your home and you're listening to Los Angeles. This is not that episode to listen to on speaker. I would go ahead and put those earbuds in or AirPods. What the hell are they called? Wow. I am geriatric. They're AirPods. Uh, AirBud is a dog. AirBud is a dog. Put your AirBuds in your ears, ladies. (laughs) Wolf, wolf. Um, I'm an idiot. Okay. Anyways, um, she does get into some uh, dialect and some terms that some might consider aggressive. We'll put it that way. So, I would just let you go. I just, we wanted to warn y'all ahead of time. It's all educational and very informative. So, you know, it's not like we're all just (laughs) and saying all these profanities. Um, But the content is a little, yeah, it's a little explicit. So, yes. All right. Enjoy our interview with Amanda Montal and be sure to pick up Word Slut wherever books are sold. Amanda Montel, welcome to Los Angeles. That is exactly the welcome I was hoping for. Also, I have to say, Amanda is in the most like Los Angeles, LA uh, location at the moment. You know, we're obviously doing this through Zoom, but she's sitting in a beautiful egg chair in her Silver Lake backyard. I try. So fitting. You know, I've I've experimented with different Zoom backgrounds and I literally bought I like scoured Craigslist where I get a lot of my furniture. I'm a good like Craigslist detective, but I I scoured Craigslist because I wanted a table that was like high enough to put in front of my egg chair so that I could place my laptop on it and have like this beautiful um, lattice background from the chair. But it was so difficult to find a table that was tall enough and that I also liked. This is boring. But anyway, this is all very purposeful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Amanda, we are going to kick off this interview with the question we ask every guest, but we're particularly excited to ask you. Oh. What is on Amanda Montel's beautiful face right now or body? Oh my God. I, I figured you would ask me a question along these lines. And so I did put on some things that I'm excited to plug. Um, first of all, have you two tried that like fairly new non-toxic? I, okay, we're going to talk about language like non-toxic later. Yes, we're going to talk about that yes, later. Yes. But have okay, you tried yeah. the quote unquote non-toxic Newish indie beauty brand t- Tower Twenty Eight. Yes, yes. Okay, because I'm wearing their blush and I love it. They're like cream blush, so pigmented. I love the little orangey color. It's like a '70s dewy disco goddess. We stand. I'm also wearing um, 
this uh, little LA-based indie brand, Noto Botanics. They're like lavender-scented highlight cream highlight on my cheeks. This Gloria is, is amazing. Oh, Gloria is, oh my god! I am obsessed. She came in when I was working at Pop Sugar. She did a makeup tutorial on one of my producers. It was inspired by Shailene Woodley. And basically I was like, can you make me look like this every day of my life? She's so talented. She's so talented. I also have like a crush on her because she's very sexy. Very. So there's also that. She Noto also makes that beautiful lip product, right? That's like in lip yes. tube. Yes, love that. And then I also wanted to talk about what I'm wearing on my pits because- Oh, we, we were, love a good pit. Yes, yeah, we were discussing this before we started recording. I have- undertaken a new expensive deodorant habit i have always like totally derided like the natural deodorant movement is it a movement i think it is it's that intense yeah um i've always just been like literally no one died wearing secret or degree and that's the only stuff that will make me not reek to the gods None of this natural, like, cutely packaged, woo-woo, blah-blah bullshit makes me <laughs> smell like anything other than a dead koala carcass. That's really specific <laughs> for a reason. I, no, I totally agree. Like, because it'll smell good upon application, but then it mixes with your, you know, BO smell, and then you smell like a dead whatever it is that you 100%. put on. 100%. But I did discover this... Canadian aluminum free all the things you're not supposed to put on yourself free deodorant and I don't even care that it's absent of all those chemicals like I really don't I'm not concerned with aluminum and whatever it's literally just because it smells so good and they're $28 a tube that's the other thing I hate about those natural deodorants is that the applicators are always so messy and nasty mm -hmm. and this has like a nice little you know twist up tube Easy peasy. It's this deodorant called Nalacare, and it's Canadian, and it's $28 a tube, but in order to get free shipping, I have to buy two. So I literally spent over $50 on two deodorant tubes, and I completely stand by it because my armpits smell like the now massage boutique, if anyone is familiar. If you know, you know. My... That's a that's an L.A. reference if I've ever heard one. My armpits smell like a hippy-dippy, bougie L.A massage spa. I gotta try this. So good. So does it smell like Palo Santo? Like, what does it smell Kinda. like? The, the, <laughs> um, the flavor that I enjoy is called, like, bergamot and sandalwood or something. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, totally. And, um, yeah, it smells amazing. Whenever I wear, whenever I wear it and, like, a breeze passes by, I'm like, mmm, what's that? Those are my pits. Those are my pits. Wait, Amanda, so does it have any ingredients in it, like AHAs or anything to help with like pH balance and stuff like that? Because that's the trend that we're seeing with these like quote unquote natural deodorants coming out. They're, they're full of different like alpha hydroxy acids, like lactic acid, mandelic acid, things like that. Amanda doesn't need that. She's got. No, I don't. I'm like, oh, I'm approaching 30, dude. Like it's, <laughs> I'm not that young anymore, but thank you for thinking that I am. Um, we keep thinking that you're just a little baby because like when we met you, you were a little Completely. baby. Um, yes. No, now that I'm no longer a beauty editor, I don't even look, I don't even pay attention to the like buzz <laughs> ingredients that are in my shit. 
Wow. Wait, there's hope for us, Sarah. Once we're not doing this anymore, we just, I thought like, I was like, wow, I'm going to never not be able to look at an, an inky list. And now with Amanda telling us that she has just thrown it by the wayside, maybe there is, we, we might be recovering sooner than we think. Who knows? Yeah, I see it for you. This is also a sign of your like thriving career as an, you know, acclaimed author that you're just able to spend $50 on <laughs> oh fancy deodorant and not even care well, what's in at it. At the expense of, you know, now I'm not spending or I don't feel the obligation to spend gajillions of dollars on makeup and things that I don't actually want. We were also talking about this earlier is that like as a beauty editor, editor, you get sent so much stuff and it creates this vicious cycle of like you have more stuff. So then you feel like you need more stuff and you also want more stuff to keep up with the stuff. And so even though you're getting sent so much free stuff, you're also spending more just to keep up. At least I was. But now I just like don't feel the need. Like I just I, I selectively buy exactly what I want and I buy it from brands that I feel like I know personally or support. Like Gloria Noto is someone who I have been drunk with. Like I love her and I love everything that she stands for. She like lives down the street from me. Um, and yeah, so that's what I'm paying attention to more, I guess, these days rather than like buzzy ingredients or whatever. I'm just like paying attention to, you know, is this a brand whose founders I want to thrive, I guess. Um, and so... That's that. Not to say that I'm not like bougie or like leaning into that ever because I spend too much money on shit all the time. But I like I don't know. I guess I'm trying to be a little more conscious about it and not conscious in like the pseudo feminist like I'm going to get all my dresses from Reformation sort of way. <laughs> well, that's yeah. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah, yeah. It's another conversation from another day. To your point, Amanda, about, you know, really curating what you use now. We kind of talked, like Sarah and I have been talking about this, especially with the pandemic happening. It's like everybody's routines have just kind of gone by the wayside in a way, especially with makeup. So you really want to actually enjoy wearing makeup if if and when you do wear it. So, I mean, totally. I know, I think personally, I mean, I, I will always be a mascara girl and I always will be down to try new mascara. But like when it comes to my face in general, I've been keeping it like very, very selective. So hopefully this, you know, the one silver lining out of all of this staying at home and not seeing people we care about is being able to min like be more minimalistic in a way. Oh, I have 100% experienced coming into like my authentic self much more um and you know hair color has had a lot to do with that body hair has a lot to do with that I really come to learn like what what am I okay with what do I like about myself or dislike about myself or want to change or not want to change with very few outside influences um and of course like social media is an influence but you can you can power down if you want to and then you can just be sort of like in a vacuum <laughs> and, yeah. you know, in in a vacuum, as it turns out, I don't care about being as bleached blonde as I've been over the past five, six, seven years. Like I've reacquainted with my natural brunette self. And at first it was a little jarring. And I did retouch my highlights yesterday because I just wanted to blend them a little better with the roots, you know, <laughs> but I'm like, you know what? I'm a fucking brunette and it's fine. It's actually more than fine. It's like 
just how my body produces pigment. Like, it's okay. <laughs> You're doing better than me. You're doing better than me. I can't bring myself to say that I'm brunette. I, I still go with dirty blonde. So um, I'm still on that <laughs> level. But people have been commenting, like when I post stuff on Instagram, like, I'm loving brunette Kirby. And at first I was like, oh my God, never speak that word to me. But now I'm kind of like, am I going to lean in to yeah. brunette Kirby? Is this going to be like my Britney Spears in the zone phase? Oh. Like, you know what I mean? Like, am yeah. I going to be brunette Britney? We I all come to that. I'm we all it. come to the brunette side from different angles. Like for me, there's no getting away with dirty blonde. Like my natural hair color is really dark. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. Everyone in my family has like black hair, including me, like baby photos of me. My hair is so dark. Like there's no arguing that I'm not a natural brunette. And everyone who's known me for a really long time has been gunning for me to grow my hair out naturally. Um, again like just waiting for the day like my my boyfriend likes my hair better natural and brunette um so I don't know I mean obviously like other people's opinions aren't as important as our own but I feel like my own has just been influenced by the wrong opinions um or or opinions that you know shouldn't really matter for so long and now also like not being physically in the beauty editor world the beauty industry which is so at least in LA blonde centric um and being like you know a writer and an author on my own terms I realized like it's okay to have brown hair like maybe even better and now like especially in our culture where we're having so many really important and overdue conversations about beauty standards, like serious conversations, not marketing bullshit conversations, like serious conversations about white supremacy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, now we're not calling problematic white women basic. We're calling them Karens. We're calling them Beckys. We're calling them white supremacists. Like we're calling them these sort of more serious politicized terms. I've been really taking that to heart. And I've been like, I don't want to align myself with that. Not to say that dyeing your hair blonde innately aligns you with like problematic politics but I've just like reevaluated why I'm doing certain things and that hair color might sound frivolous but it's not and I actually had a conversation with some author friends of mine um one of whom is Koa Beck who is has a forthcoming book called White Feminism um who like used to work in women's media and has also like sort of similar to me transitioned into being a full-time author and like I, you know, she noticed how brown my hair was looking and I was like, oh, I was like, oh, God, I have to like apologize because we're about to have a conversation about hair color with this with these like intellectuals that I really care about. But they were so into that conversation and it turned into a conversation about Sylvia Plath and how hair color because she worked in women's media, too, um, in addition to being like a a feminist like kind of dark poet and like hair color was a huge part of her writing and authorly journey and career and mood and so it's like it can be a pretty loaded issue actually wow we could have a whole nother episode just dedicated to this I was gonna say I was like this is I love that this is what we kicked off the episode with (laughs) we just wanted to know what's on your pits and now we're talking about I love it it's great sorry that's just like what happens because I like sort of hold these ident all of these seemingly conflicting identities at once, like former beauty editor, feminist sociolinguist, author. Now I'm writing a book about cults and I can't help but kind of like find the intersections, you know, that link all of these different disciplines. 
Um, Because there are like, you know, sort of unexpected connections between them all. But anyways. Okay. So before you became an acclaimed author, you were also... I love that you laugh when I say that, but you are, you are, uh, word, word is great. So you were a beauty editor, as you have mentioned. Um, and we met Amanda when you were like right at the beginning of your beauty editor career. Were you, you were like what? 24, 23, something like that. 23. Yeah. Yeah. Very young. Um, we just knew you as this like vivacious, you know, Amanda Montel. And then we found out you were a linguist and we were like, holy shit, this girl is brilliant. So I want to know personally, like, how do you think your career in beauty helped you write Word Slut? Well, I think, you know, I I sort of fell into beauty editing. I I my background is in linguistics. That's what I majored in in college. And I never expected to be able to write about it for a general audience because being like a linguistics writer was not a thing. So I was like, great. I I want to write nonfiction books. That's my dream. But then I also need a day job. So I was like, I, I tried out a bunch of different different internships in college in New York. And women's media seemed like sort of the lowest lift and the most fun. Um, and, you know, because I could have worked at like a literary nonprofit or at like a hard hit- hitting journalistic publication. But I was like, eh, no, women's media is more fun. So I'm going to try that. And um, once I moved to L.A., there, you know, there are quite a few beauty publications out here. So that's what I um, ended up doing. And it was fun, of course, and glamorous and um how I think it really empowered what I ended up going on to write, which is, you know, seemingly very different pop feminist sociolinguistics, pop sociology. Now I'm writing for TV. Like you think, how are those things connected? But really, I mean, first of all, there are so many brilliant people across so many disciplines who are interested in beauty. And so I met and was connected to so many figures by way of the beauty industry that ended up um, you know, being, being really important for my career, like Koa Beck, um, this, this woman I mentioned before, who's writing this book called White Feminism. She, she came from writing for Hearst publications too. Um, but I think most importantly, like it, it, well, it empowered my writing skill because writing is a muscle and no matter what you're writing, if you're writing about lipstick, if you're writing about politics, and sometimes those two things overlap unexpectedly, um, you're you're going to you're just going to sharpen that skill and strengthen that muscle. And so when it came time to sit down and write a book, which I had to do fairly quickly because I took a six month leave of absence from my full time job, I was already you know in the mindset of meeting really tight daily deadlines, producing huge word counts every day. Um, and that was that was great because I was able to like execute that. And of course, the topic was very different. And my first draft of my first book was really rough. But I was at least able to output because I had been outputting, you know, beauty editor deadlines are, are nuts. Um, and so I, I was accustomed to that. Um, but also like the beauty industry is so, such a monster and in a lot of ways really positive, but in a lot of ways really problematic. And so it was constantly challenging me to question it and to subvert it and to think about it and criticize it while also participating in it. And I think that's helped me criticize and subvert and question culture in general, um, which is now what I do in my writing. What do you think is the most problematic part of the beauty industry as it stands right now? 
Oh my god. <laughs> Where to begin? I mean, I guess I, like I, I look at everything from a language angle, and so I, I can sort of, I can sort of it look, sort of look at it through that lens. Um, but I would say that you know the beauty industry has always capitalized on um, you know convincing women. It's also very binary. Um, the, the, the beauty industry has, has, well, it's historically been very binary and that's slowly changing. Um, but it's historically capitalized on, you know, telling women that they, that they have something wrong with them, capitalizing on some neurosis, some anxiety, and then selling them a product to fix it. But that product is deeply unregulated and probably doesn't work. (laughs) So you're at once telling women that they are too old too big, taking too, taking up too much space, too ugly, too whatever. Here is an eye cream that's going to make you radiant. And the beauty industry uses so many metaphors and so many euphemisms that I think can be really problematic. And um, I've been thinking recently, because I'm writing this book about the language of cults now, and about um, how cults from Scientology to SoulCycle use language to create influence and to condition and coerce. <laughs> So beauty's a cult is what you're saying. Well, uh, to some degree. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, I think the beauty industry, especially now, has a ton of influence. And there are all these organizational organizational ideologies that are connected to certain brands. So, you know, you're no longer buying into a product when you buy something. You're buying into a lifestyle, an identity, a community. You know, I, I think of Glossier. Like, when you buy Boy Brow, you're not just buying a brow gel. You're buying an identity, a community, you are buying values. And that's, you know, that's what capitalism and consumerism is in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that way, it is a little bit cultish. That's the name of my next book, by the way, (laughs) is cultish. Cultish? Um, That's a scoop because I haven't announced that. But um, I love that. (laughs) uh, But yeah, I think, you know, obviously the consequences of being a part of a beauty cult and the consequences of being a part of Scientology or something like that are incredibly different. The stakes can't be compared. You know, you're not going to lose your life. You're not going to lose your liberties, your life savings. Um, but you are going to fork at least some money and identity and um, and, and liberty into over to that brand. Um, and, you know, I think something that is cultish about the beauty industry is that it makes a lot of false promises that it cannot deliver on. And that's um, a tenet of some of the most dangerous cults in history. Again, the stakes are really different, but it can be a little bit cultish. And so I've been thinking about like the language of cults, obviously, for the past year. And I think about like the difference between metaphor and euphemism. That's something I've been thinking about over the past couple of days. And the beauty industry uses a lot of both. And I think of metaphors as language that that make concepts even more emotional and euphemisms are concepts that make things less emotional and the beauty industry kind of weaponizes both so when the beauty industry uses buzzwords like luminous and radiant and silky smooth skin they're not talking about literal luminosity which is like a scientific concept about like you know emitting light um nobody's skin is actually going to turn into silk or or you know even resemble silk but these are these sort of like loaded aspirational metaphors that the beauty industry has convinced women 
are possible as long as you drop $150 on this patented, by the way, patented doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean it works. It just means that someone has paid some money to, to make it secret um, and to make it exclusive. So anyway, if you drop $150 on this patented eye cream, which is non-toxic and natural and safe and whatever, and that, that's loaded language as well, um, then you will ha- then you will be radiant, luminous, silky smooth. You will be young forever. You'll be an attractive, valuable person. But then there are also these euphemisms. So like, you know, I think we all remember a couple years ago when the beauty industry came out and they were like, we're no longer using the words anti-aging. That's yeah. damaging. And so we started using euphemisms instead, like aging well and aging gracefully and youth inducing. And those terms really took the sting out of anti-aging, which is obviously very ageist and, you know, keeps keeps people who are above the age of 35 from respect and power and opportunities in a lot of ways. You know, ageism is very real. But at the same time, the beauty industry is just like slapping a different label on the same standards and the same products and the same ingredients. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, this is a very long winded response to your question. But I think that pairing of like capitalizing on women's neuroses and also pairing them with products that really a lot of them don't do what they promise um, is really problematic and then when you load all of that with like misleading language it just becomes like really poisonous this totally leads into or segues into our next question perfectly so it's great so yeah so in terms of like the terms that we are using right now in the beauty and wellness industry a lot of them and this is something that you've mentioned to us previously have suggested that we've progressed or become more inclusive as an industry but like like you said just as sus as it was 20 years ago with you know um anti-aging and and dieting versus clean eating or clean clean beauty can you talk about maybe the one that like really makes your eye roll or like one that you find like just you want everyone to stop using? Oh, gosh. Okay, so there's... Let me think about the one that I really, really want everyone to stop using and that I think is kind of the most damaging. But there's also one that's top of mind. Um, Because, okay, I was... I can't believe I'm talking about this right now. But a few months ago, I was scrolling through Instagram and I follow for Love and Lemons, or I used to, the, you know, fashion brand... And I came across this image that they posted of a model who was so stick skinny and her face looked so childlike. I was disturbed. Um, And I looked at the comments and they were all like, what Jeffrey Epstein ass account is this? Is she eight years old? Like, it was alarming, the, the appearance of this model. I don't know anything about her. I don't know how old she is, but... She was like the decision to post this image, I felt, was really reinforcing and perpetuating an extreme standard of thinness and youth. And so I commented on it and I never do that. I would normally just mute or unfollow and like quietly go off into the night. My bandwidth is limited. But this image made me so upset that I commented and I sort of I don't use the language calling out. I called the brand in. I called them in to my perspective And, you know, I let them know that I thought it was really troubling that 
you know, amidst so many conversations about inclusivity, they continue to perpetuate this impossible to meet standard. And I really thought it would be better for our culture and also probably their bottom line to make more women feel like they could picture themselves in this clothing. It was swimwear, by the way. And, you know, this comment, whatever, I just kind of like commented it on a whim because I was feeling triggered. But I I went all along my merry way. I kind of forgot about it. But then I checked Instagram a few hours later. Let's be honest, a few minutes later. And there were like 150 likes and so many comments. And most of them were echoing my point of view. Then there were people who were telling me that I was a body shamer because I commented that I thought that this model was, you know, very thin and, you know, so few folks are really that thin. Yes, I did make a comment on this woman's body. Um, however, body shaming is not when you criticize a brand for perpetuating the same quote unquote perfect unattainable standard. People really, I think, misunderstand what body shaming and what body positivity or body acceptance really are. Because this, if we're not allowed to criticize the completely fucked up standards that have existed for decades, because people are going to say body shamer, body shamer, then we have a real problem there. And I actually like I have a quote that speaks to this that I read in Gabrielle Korn's forthcoming novel. Um, novel. Oh, my God. I'm an idiot. Memoir. Gabrielle Korn's forthcoming memoir. She wrote she's um, a beauty editor at Refinery29, formerly N- Nylon. And she like has a memoir about her experience in women's media that's coming out soon. But I just want to like pull up this quote Um because she referenced this racked essay titled Body Positivity is a Scam. And it's written by this woman named Amanda Mole, who wrote, to have a body that's widely reviled and discriminated against, aka someone who's not thin and white, and love it anyway in the face of constant cultural messaging about your flaws is subversive. But like Mole's argument here is that this concept has been co-opted, like I said, and bastardized by corporations who've, you know, discovered that women are more likely to participate in and engage with and buy their content and products if it's based on like empowerment and acceptance and positivity instead of shame. And so when body positivity is used as like a sort of marketing strategy by corporations, um, especially on social media, Mulwright's An alarming percentage of the public conversations about which bodies our culture values or rejects pivots around models, actresses, and other professionally beautiful people reassuring them that they are, in fact, super hot. You know what I mean? It's like we're we're now at a point where we've misinterpreted the body body positivity movement such that Now, it's perfectly fine to keep perpetuating those same standards because if we criticize them, then we're body shamers. And by the way, this account that called me that then proceeded to troll my Instagram and was commenting on my images like, you look underage, you look this, you look that, because they were so, I mean, obviously, internet trolls, they you know, respond based on really negative gut reactions. Um, They don't behave as they would in person. We've seen a lot of that 
from all angles, especially over the past few months. But um, I blocked her, of course. But um, I thought that was really disturbing. And I think that, you know, body shaming cannot exist if the person you are quote unquote shaming is someone who does not experience real oppression because of their body. There's someone who who's uplifted because of their body, who's hired and lionized because of their body. Body shaming can only happen if someone is being kept from respect, power, opportunities because of their body. So I just that I thought was like so disturbing and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it over the past like three months since that happened. Um, So anyway, that's that's fucked up. (laughs) So do you have a do you have a problem with the word body positive or the phrasing? So I think that body positive is a little bit problematic for another reason. And that's this sort of like idea of silver lining or making it so that people feel like forced to be happy with their body. So now like women aren't being shamed for having an imperfect body, except they still low-key, high-key are. Now they're also being shamed for feeling bad about not having a perfect body. You know what I mean? And I think that um, those implications are there with body positivity, which is, I think, why some people have chosen to use language like body acceptance or body neutrality. And I really identify with those phrases instead because I don't think you have to be super gung-ho and positive about your body or the way it looks to be able to live like a healthy, productive life. You know, like we put way too much pressure on us loving our body shapes. Why can't we just be fine with our body shapes so we can focus on other things? Amen. (laughs) So I, um, yeah, I like body acceptance. I think, you know, putting an emphasis on fat acceptance is really important too because like, My body as like a small white woman is already accepted. And maybe I don't feel like in love with my body all the time. But our culture at large isn't like sensitive to whether or not I'm five pounds heavier, five pounds lighter, or whether or not my triceps are in shape. It's it's a much bigger issue than that. So I think like systemically, we need to be focusing on accepting and uplifting bodies that are not normatively already acceptable according to our culture. But I, I'm really bothered by a lot of marketing language in the beauty industry just because I think it's really misleading um, and how it uses so many of those euphemisms and um, loaded language and metaphors in a way that's like super deceptive. Um, and, you know, obviously like there's no regulation when it comes to cosmetic ingredients um there is when it comes to drugs but and yet the promises made by so many skincare products are so over the top and you know they claim that they're going to be able to alter your dna and you know reduce the appearance of this and that they kind of like circumvent um the the like lies at the heart of what they're talking about and i think like some some beauty brand founders are really well-intentioned and they don't mean to be lying, but like they've been conditioned and coerced by the industry themselves into thinking that this stuff really works. Um, And so I don't know. I think like also in contemporary culture, there's this whole movement toward like non-toxic, all natural. Toxic is such a loaded word. Like no beauty product is literally poisonous. No beauty product is toxic. Like 
in the literal sense. Um, it's just that, you know, when when beauty products are said to have chemicals, we all want them to be chemical free. That's thought of as like so horrifying, even though a chemical is literally just any substance made of matter. Everything is made up of chemicals. So chemical free is really misleading, too. But I don't know. There's just like a lot of deceptive buzz language happening in the beauty industry. It's so hard to narrow it down to one that gets on my nerves most. No, this is great. I want to bring this up uh, because I think it's it's relevant right now. Are there any common slang words that white women in particular use and may seem harmless, but they're actually problematic and they should be erased from our vocabulary? I mean, I feel like you know what I'm going to say. I do, but I want to hear it from you. (laughs) Because it's girl boss. (laughs) I hate that term. And I really don't want to drag Sophia Amoruso (laughs) because... Girl boss as a hashtag and a branding exercise is, you know, exactly what capitalism wants. It's like so buzzy and it sounds great. It rolls right off the tongue. But I think girl boss bugs the hell out of me for a few reasons. First of all, well, I'll say something that I don't that I, I don't normally talk about when I drag the term girl boss, but that shit has been co-opted by the MLM industry. <laughs> and it's you know, it's weaponized by MLMs. You know the ones, Arbon, Roden and Fields. I will call them in. No, these are brands that I'm calling out. Um, yeah, like these really deceptive schemes, which will cause you to go broke. That's what I was going to say, Amanda, when you brought that up, when you were like, you know, beauty, unlike a cult, like they won't necessarily like make you go broke. And I'm like, Unless it's yeah, an MLM. no, MLMs will. And um, I dedicate an entire like 50 page section of my cult book to the language of MLMs. Oh my God. Wow. And Girl Boss is really destructive in MLM speak because you're basically conditioning through the repetition of Girl Boss, Boss Babe, Girl Boss, Boss Babe, you know, vulnerable populations middle-class stay-at-home moms largely into believing that they are entrepreneurs and they're going to this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and they're going to they're going to make a full-time living with part-time work and you're like using the pseudo-feminist bullshit jargon to, you know, manipulate them into feeling empowered even though you're not empowering them at all. You're you're exploiting them. Um and so girl boss has been weaponized by the MLM industry, which I find really disturbing. But even when it's used in just like non-MLM beauty industry context or any context really, why I don't like girl boss. And of course there are no hard and fast rules. Like that's the fun thing about language and that's what I'm trying to do with wordslut is I'm really just bringing empirical information to people's consciousness so that they can then make their own better informed decision about how they want to use it. You know, if I say things like, well, terms like girl boss and CEO and mompreneur really highlight the fact that the terms CEO and boss and entrepreneur are tacitly coded male. They're not gender neutral. And when a woman dares to endeavor in business, we have to cutesify her title. You know, when I when I highlight facts like that or highlight the fact that girl is diminutive and the idea of calling, you know, a 60 year old male boss a boy boss is absurd. <laughs> when I say things like that Boy and boss. someone's like, someone's like, you know what? I still like girl boss. I'm like, fine, do your thing. Like the culture at large will determine how language moves forward. And so if we as a culture 
come to a consensus generally that we like the term girl boss and it's um, and it's going to stick around, then that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. However, if we are already on board with the ideologies of gender equality in the workplace, then maybe we'll want to decide that girl boss should be stricken from our vocabularies because what it does is reinforce and reflect the idea that business affairs and being at the head of a business is a male enterprise. Um, and so I'm, I don't like that. When people call me a girl boss, I'm like, mm, no, I'm grown. And I, I'm also not even a boss. I don't have any subordinates. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've also seen it on so many like children's shirts and like, you know what I mean? Which is, it is yeah. totally problematic because we are teaching them that they can only be a girl boss and not just a boss. For sure. Not to mention, like, it's hopelessly binary. Actually, it's so funny. I have a friend named Jacob Tobiah, who is an author and an activist, a writer. Um, they wrote a memoir called Sissy, a coming of gender story. Um, they're fabulous and hilarious and a dear friend. And Jacob posted this hilarious meme on Instagram yesterday that was like a gender reveal cake that somebody had baked. And the, oh my God, let me pull it up because it's it's so funny. I was cavelling. It was so funny. Cavelling or kvetching? I don't know. One or the other. <laughs> this is me speaking Yiddish now. If you know, you know. It was a cake and the caption was, OMG. This was the caption that was, you know, a part of the meme, not, not Jacob's caption. But it said, OMG, can't wait to find out if I'm having a little Caden with a K or a little Caden with a C. Apparently one is a male name and one is a female name. And then the cake, one half was blue and the other half was pink. And on the blue side, it said guns. And on the pink side, it said glitter. So it said guns or glitter, the cake. And one was for boys and one no. was for girls. And Jacob in their caption said, are cis people okay? Doesn't seem like they're doing well. Um, and I'm just like, the emphasis that we put on children's gender, even before they're born, is bonkers. Like, putting girl boss on a six-year-old's t-shirt is hilariously inaccurate, first of all, because that six-year-old, like me, does not have subordinates. <laughs> and also, like, why do we want to tell someone who they are? Like, we're literally putting words on their shirt. Self-define. And we're in an age of self-definition. Like, this sort of age of individualism and personal brands, it is really at odds with telling people who they are before they get to decide themselves. I just have to add that, as you know, I am with child and having a girl. Well, if she decides that what she identifies as but in our nursery one of the few books that we have is word, word slut that will be in her yes nursery. teach teach <laughs> the child to use the word slut in positive context only from a very young age and no girl boss t-shirts let's talk about using language creatively to redefine the way we talk about and feel about our bodies and how we talk about sex because oh shit yeah. Like, are we calling ourselves or each other like cute too much? Like, what can we do? Mm. That's a really interesting um, question, specifically the cute thing. Because this is the Los Angeles podcast, I feel like I can say that I feel like 
calling things cute that are actually maybe beautiful or stunning to look at or impressive or any other number of positive qualities, using the word cute to describe them is very LA specific. And I noticed that when I moved here and when I started working in the beauty industry that a lot of people that I worked for and was surrounded by, you know, I would have them read a draft of an article and they would be like, cute. Or I would show them like a a stunning image that I wanted to, or maybe not a stunning image, maybe just like a fine image that I wanted to use in the article and they'd be like, cute. (laughs) Or we would sit down to lunch and a caprese salad would come out and they'd be like, oh, cute. (laughs) And I was like, I would be so pissed if I turned in chapters of a book and someone was like, cute. Yeah, cute. Dude. Okay. I literally started doing this and I hate that about myself. My literary agent came to visit me a few years ago, came in from New York. She's like an intellectual literary human. We sat down to dinner to have some pasta and she was telling me about a history book from one of her clients that was being published. And I was like, oh, what what is it about? And she explained it to me. This is a history book. And I went, cute. Did she say something? The look of horror that crossed her face was unforgettable. That really called attention to it for me because I was like, wow, LA people use cute in like really inappropriate context. I have to agree with you. I overused that adjective just way too much. But what do they use in New York? I don't know. They probably get more specific. They would probably be like, that sounds intriguing. Or a, or a, um, a caprese salad would land on the table and they would be like, this looks fresh and scrumptious. They would like use words to describe. I feel like it's also generational though. No, like millennials. Yeah, yeah. Guys, I want to be complete. Wow, I said guys. That's a, whole nother, that's a whole nother topic that I learned from Amanda, by the way. Default maleness, y'all. It's real. Y'all, y'all. I should lean into my inner Texan. Yeah. Y'all, I have to say, I don't think I use the word cute too much. I describe Sarah as being cute with her pregnant belly, but I would argue that that literally is cute. That is the definition of cute, right? I don't think I use cute too much. Great. I do. I I mean, I've kind of I've kind of abolished it from my vocabulary. Yeah, I think Sarah's pregnant belly is cute as fuck. I think, you know. We just need to be more intentional about it. Like, I'm not going to okay, okay. get rid of cute. Right. I'm just not going to describe my literary agent's client's history book as cute. You know what I mean? Or a caprese salad. Yeah, what? Because it's delicious. Yeah. It's not cute. Yeah, it's picturesque. Uh, respect. It's photogenic. It's It looks scrumdiddlyumptious. I don't know. Um, okay, how we can redefine our bodies and sex. Yeah, so I like have this chapter in Word Slut about genitalia naming slang throughout history. And how the ways that we describe sex in our bodies reflect our attitudes towards sex and bodies in our culture at large. And really what, um, you know, slang lexicographers who've studied genitalia naming slang have found is really like our worst cultural values um, when it comes to sex are reflected in the way that we describe genitalia. And the metaphors are like, you know, penises are always weapons and sex is always violence and vaginas are always, you know, some empty receptacle waiting for a penis. Um, there are even medical dictionary definitions that define a vagina as the organ that receives the penis. That's something that I found while researching Word Slut. It's like, um, 
What about the vagina of a child? Well, just the word like penetration, right? 100%. Yeah, that's like a, a, a point that I make early in the book that, you know, when I was first taking my gender and language classes in college, certain ways that gender stereotypes are hidden in our language started to blow my mind. Like the idea that the word penetration implies and reinforces the idea that sex is from a penis's perspective. You know, another alternative way to describe it might be envelopment or enclosure or something like that or something completely different or if you want to get slangy and gay about it clit smashing i don't know there are like so many ways that we could describe it instead of penetration or screwing or boning and you know that that language really suggests and perpetuates the idea that like sex is something from the male perspective it it you know finishes when the guy comes whatever and so like it's tricky because these terms are this is a very dirty conversation for los angeles is it i don't even know no no just go okay great um but this is why it's fun to be like a language and gender writer or scholar because you get to talk about this stuff but it's in the context of like academia and science and so you can get away with it and my dirty mouth really appreciates that so but it's tricky because like this language is so embedded and has been for so long in the way that these perspectives are really embedded um that you know it's it's hard to come up with like a, a fast solution um and certainly like you can't tell people to to start saying envelopment and enclosure and expect that they're going to automatically start seeing sex it from a, a female perspective or from a vulva's perspective vulva by the way is a word that is um depressingly absent from our general vocabulary like the vagina is just the canal and there's a whole vulva going on anywho um the point is that like our our, our ideologies and our language go hand in hand and so you can't really like police someone's language or control someone's language and expect that the way they think about something is going to follow. It kind of has to happen the other way around. And so if you are already of the mind that like, yeah, hey, I want the sexual playing field to be more equal and more inclusive of all different bodies and sexual orientations and behaviors and activities, then maybe like I want to start getting creative with my language and coming up with my own terms to describe my body and sex. And, you know, maybe I'm not going to use them in public. Maybe I'll only start like playfully suggesting them to my partners or maybe using them with my friends or maybe using them on the internet. But who knows? I mean, it's, it's interesting just to have the invitation to think about how our language reflect problematic attitudes and perspectives and to like start experimenting with language as a way to rebel against it or subvert it. Um, I knew that you would have a, a great response to that one because <laughs> I, I love hearing you talk a little dirty to us. This is going to, you know what? This is going to be our first explicit episode. Ooh. I'm honored. You're so welcome. Okay. So one critique that Sarah and I get to this day, it happened when we started the pod, but we still get it. And at this point, at first it really bothered me and I would make Patrick edit the podcast so that it cleaned up all of these words that we used. But now I just truly don't give a shit. This is how we speak. It is who we are. Okay. So we use the word like, and we say, um, a lot and in normal conversation, it sounds normal, but right. when you hear it broadcast out into the world, it can be grating. 
So do you believe that talking like a Valley girl is, well, actually, I, I know how you feel about this because of the book, but do you believe that talking like a Valley girl is a sign of linguistic innovation? So can you explain to everybody why you feel that way and why Sarah and I are actually linguistically innovative and not dumb? Yes. So <laughs> so I, I wrote this chapter in the book called Women Didn't Ruin the English Language, They Like Invented It. And teenage girls are a demographic that are just like generally hated in our society. And so their language is hated as well. And, you know, why we culturally lambast speech qualities often heard and maybe invented and popularized by young women has really nothing to do with the language qualities themselves and way more to do with our feelings about young women in general. There's this amazing quote from a New Yorker reporter who wrote, if middle-aged white men had been the ones to invent and popularize like, we'd be reading the like New Yorker. <laughs> but we deride, we deride young women, and so we deride the way that they use language. However, linguists have found time and time again that young women are our culture's linguistic innovators. And one of my favorite theories as to why this might be is that young women and lots of other marginalized populations, by the way, it's, it's a beautiful and also melancholy fact that some of our culture's most oppressed communities also invent language the most creatively because these communities use language as a form of social power and solidarity in a culture that doesn't give them too many other tools um, to assert and create their power. So, you know, with like, um, at this point, men and women use likes overall in equal measure. However, we're more sensitive when women do it because men are seen in, as the default in our language, as in our culture. Um, and so when men use language this way or that way, we're not like super tuned in. We don't feel like hypercritical of it because whatever a middle-aged white man does is just by default accepted. Um, but when a woman does it, it's criticized. Um, especially a woman of color or a woman of any number of complex intersecting identities. Um, anyone who is not seen as the default, there's default maleness, there's default whiteness. Um, and these are all uh, issues that show up in the way that we think about language and the way that we use language. So the fun part about like is that there are linguists who've dedicated their entire careers to investigating the many different functions of the word like. And there's this one linguist in particular who found that there are actually six completely different versions of the word like. And they're all homonyms, just as, you know, the noun watch, meaning the timepiece on your wrist and the verb watch, meaning what you do with your eyes when you turn on the TV are homonyms. And they all serve a really specific purpose. Um, one is a verb, one is an adjective, one is an adverb, one is a discourse marker, one is a discourse particle, one is a quotative like. Um, and only two of them are used marginally more by women than by men. And only one of them is thought to have been pioneered by other young Southern California females in the 1990s. That would be the quotative like, which you hear in a sentence like, and I was like, and she was like, and we were like, and there's nothing inherently bad about this like. In fact, it has exploded in popular usage and men use it. My dad uses it. Everybody uses it because it's so useful because it allows you to quote an interaction or convey something that happened without having to quote it verbatim. So if you were like, if you said, if you were like, that's the quotative like. So if you said something like, yeah, I went into the office the other day 
of course, nobody's doing that now that we're in quarantine. But I went into the office the other day and my boss was like, I need to see those papers by Monday. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You're not saying what you actually said to your boss. You're just conveying how you felt or what you wanted to say or the general mood. So thank you very much, Valley Girls. That's super useful. But we criticize it because women created it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with using one, two or all of these likes in any given conversation um, empirically. Uh, but we're just super sensitive when women use it, especially when women who have some amount of power, like podcast hosts, we're very sensitive to that. And, you know, criticizing the way that a woman speaks rather than the content of her statements is a form of linguistic objectification. You know, it's the same as criticizing a woman for her skirt being too short. It's it's almost a way of like punishing women for their own oppression. And, you know, one of the reasons why women are so inventive with language is because of the oppression that they've experienced. Like I said, it's a way of creating social power in a culture that doesn't give us a lot of other ways to do that. So, you know, if someone criticizes me for saying, uh, too many likes, I say, oh, really? Which kind? Because there are six different kinds and they're all different parts of speech and they serve different social utilities. I'd love to talk about them with you. <laughs> yes. I hope that person who commented is listening to this. I don't think she does listen anymore because she said she couldn't because of how we spoke. Well, you know what? So, Someone I'm listened to us at two speed and they still continued to listen to us. So... Take that, lady. Yeah, I mean, she's also probably experiencing a lot of internalized misogyny. You know, a lot of the the most egregious, extreme criticisms of the way that I talk have come from women who are, say, like 20 or 30 years older than me because they had to accommodate to a, a male default standard and they had to fight tooth and nail to be accepted in male-dominated spaces. And so they're going to hold me to that same standard and perpetuate it. So, you know, I think the least that any of us can do is not judge other women for using language in a way that's not, that doesn't sound like a middle-aged white man and not to think that it's less than or that it's inherently worse just because it doesn't sound like them. So that's one topic within Word Slut that if that doesn't convince you to buy the book, I don't know what will, except... Maybe it's that it's available in paperback now. <laughs> Woo! Paperback. You can listen to the audiobook yes. I recorded it myself. You can listen to your voice. I love it. Oh my God, that's exciting. Was that hard? It's hard. It, they're long days. You know, you're like cooped up in a little booth for like six hours, three days in a row or something like that. But it's pretty fun because... You know, you, you wrote it. Yeah, you get to. And I love reading my work out loud. Like I, I read out loud as I write. Um, and my book is my books are written very much in my voice. Um, so it's fun for me. And it's also fun when the sound engineer like is invested in the content of your book because they listen to so many books. That's their whole job is to just listen to authors read their books. And so they're kind of bored of it. But whenever they get excited, I'm like, oh, I did something good. Yay, Amanda. <laughs> um, where can people pick up Word Slut? Wherever books are sold. But I recommend, you know, patronizing your local indie or you can find it on bookshop.org. That's a great retailer because it um, it supports independent bookshops. Yes. Awesome. How about your audiobook? Yeah, you can get that wherever you get your audiobooks. Audible, The Bad Place, Amazon. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. I don't know where people... Like, the publisher sent me a bunch of CDs. <laughs> so, 
if I don't even know where to put that <laughs> I don't know where to put it either so I, it's literally in a, in a closet I'm just like I don't know what this is um I know like I bet some people I bet some like hipsters sell their audiobooks on vinyl that would be hilarious um you should totally come up with like a bright yellow I should do yes. that for my cult book because like <gasps> there's some like yes. 70s vibes surrounding cults that would be yes. so fun that would be that would cute. be amazing that would be so cute, Amanda. That would be cute. It'd be groovy <laughs> so even. Cute. So cute. Um, Amanda, we love you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And I, I hope people learn something. If you did it, you must be a genius at this point because <laughs> this was so great. I learned so much from you. I love Amanda University. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. And you guys know, you guys, Amanda, I can't quit the habit, y'all. It's okay. Be gentle with I yourself. I will. I need to like really work on it. <laughs> because here's the other thing is that you had to beat y'all out of you in order to conform to a California standard. Yes. So you're just, you're up against a lot. I am. I am. I'm going to try. I'm going to go back to my roots, though. Y'all, you know where to find us. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Los Angeles Pod. On Facebook, you can join our Facebook group. Just search Los Angeles. And we'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.